0: You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. All right. I uh, hope you had hope and trust you had a good Easter last week. I know that uh, me and my family, we ate really good. Uh, we were one of the I know Chris did a survey last week how many were eating honey baked hams and were only like like three or four of us, so I was one of those lucky three or four that got to eat. You you too? Yeah, it's good stuff. I don't know how they do it, but it's good. Um, But I hope it was good, Um, and if you were here, obviously you uh, know that we stepped away from our series in Luke, and we did a standalone message uh, on Easter, but today we are jumping back in, as Mike just said. Uh, But before we look at our passage this morning, I just want to take a couple of minutes uh, to think about where we are culturally as it relates to image management. And what I mean by that is that because of the internet, and specifically perhaps because of social media, we live in this really weird moment where everyone, from uh, companies to schools and universities to churches, and, and yes, even now us as individuals, we all have an image, or I guess you could even say a brand, to protect. And for some of us, the, the image or the brand we're trying to portray and protect is that we are welcoming and inclusive of everybody, except for those who disagree with us. But that, you know, that's another message. Um, and and that, that message, that message of, of being inclusive, it comes out in advertising and, and social media accounts and all of that. For others, the image they're trying to uh, portray and to protect is that uh, they care about social issues, that they care about the needs of others. And again, this too comes out in various ways. And certainly we see this, this kind of thing come out, again, with companies and, and schools and, and, yes, even in churches. But as I just mentioned, I think we're also starting to see this uh, happen with individuals as well. That as individuals, we have an image and a brand to protect. And for some individuals, the, the image they're trying to protect and to portray is that they have the perfect style and taste when it comes to home decorating. Right? It's like we're all just Chip and Joanna Gaines, and our houses are all white and beautiful and all of that. And uh, for others, though, it's not home. Maybe it's more fashion, it's your clothes. Um, for some, that, that they're not interested in that, but the image they want to protect is that they're a good parent, that they're a good spouse. Which is why, I mean, I just have noticed this phenomenon in the last year or two, that that there is all of this pressure when it's your spouse's birthday, or it's your anniversary, or it's Valentine's Day, or whatever, that to be a good spouse, it looks like you posting a picture, a really cute picture of you guys, uh, and then writing like a page or two long summary of how lucky and how amazing your spouse is, and putting it on Facebook or Instagram. And that, you know, this thing that we used to put in birthday cards, you remember those, like when you go to the store and you buy a birthday card, now we're putting it out for the whole world to see. And if you think I'm exaggerating or making this up, just get on Instagram or get on Facebook in a couple weeks when it's Mother's Day, and you will see dozens and dozens of pictures of people with their mom talking about how awesome their mom is. Now look, I'm not bringing that up, I'm sure there are some of you in here who do this. Um, and I'm not bringing this up to, to make you feel bad or to try to talk you out of doing it. My, my point is simply this, that, that this has become such a thing in our culture that now it feels like it's an expectation. And that not only if you don't do it, are you not conforming, but you're also not protecting your image or your brand as an individual. And again, this, this kind of thing is everywhere in our culture, It's companies, it's universities, it's individuals. And and it seems like that right now in our culture, the scariest thing or the worst thing that could happen to you if you uh, lead a company or a school or or a church or even for you as an individual is to have your brand or to have your image uh, tainted, questioned, or even worse, outright rejected. Like to have that happen to you or to your organization is the equivalent of hell on earth right now. And so because of that, when something hits the media, when something goes viral, uh, you know, companies and organizations, they're very quick to fire. It's like fire now, ask questions later, and investigate later. Uh, with individuals, when something happens, they get in trouble in some way, or people come down on them, they'll post some video of them trying to apologize or whatever. And, and sometimes it just, it feels so crazy, It feels like we're all just living under a microscope, and everyone is just waiting for someone to slip up or to not toe the line in some way, and when that happens, people are just waiting to pounce on you and to deliver some sort of moral judgment. And yet because our culture's norms and morals keep switching and shifting, it can be a real challenge to know how people will respond to something. Like something that might have been a really big deal five or 10 years ago is not a big deal, And things that were, uh, and and vice versa, the same is true as well. You see, for a while, I think it looked like everyone was really buying into the postmodern secular idea that truth is relative and that there are no moral absolutes. But now it feels like things have changed and shifted and people do believe in moral absolutes. They're just not based on the Bible anymore, but rather they're based on whatever culture currently believes and affirms at the time. And as I thought about this, really what I think is behind all of this image management, what's behind all of this desire to control how others see you is ultimately fear. And specifically, I think it's the fear of rejection, or what the Bible talks about as the fear of man. And yet what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that Jesus, for himself, while he walked on this earth, he was totally and he was utterly free from all of that. Not only did he not give in to the fear of man, but he also didn't let others' expectations of him control him, or to keep him from doing what the Father had called him to do. And so with that as a kind of introduction, let's jump in and, and take a look at this story. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Um, it's on page 859 in our Pew Bibles. And we've got a lot to cover today, so I'm not going to have us stand and read today's passage, but we will work through the story here. But before we do, let me just open us up with a word of prayer. Father, you know the days and the times that we're living in. And we know that you have called us to uh, these days and these times and it's not an accident. Lord, I just pray that you would illuminate your scriptures to us this morning. Lord, I just pray that we could see Jesus so clearly. Lord, that we would see him in his glory and we would uh, be in awe and inspired by him. And I pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you uh, give us eyes to see, would you give us ears to hear, and would you change our hearts, Lord? Help us to look more and more like Jesus Christ. I pray this in his name, amen. All right, so our outline this morning to walk us through this story is just uh, very simply, number one, the sermon. Number two, the crowd's response to the sermon. Number three, Jesus' response to the crowd's response. And then number four, the crowd's response to Jesus' response. Did you follow all that? All right. Well, I think you'll you'll be okay once we get into it. But let's start with that first one there, and that's number one, the sermon. Uh, Look at verses 14 and 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So, if you remember, at the, begin, at the beginning of chapter 4, we saw that Jesus, being full of the Spirit after his baptism, that he was then led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. But now, here, we see that he's returning from that temptation in the power of the Spirit. And what the Spirit leads and empowers Jesus to do is to preach and to teach. And where the Spirit leads him to go is to the region of Galilee. Now remember, Galilee is in the northern uh, section of Israel. It's where uh, the Sea of Galilee is. It's where towns like Cana and Capernaum and Nazareth are. Um, It's about 70 to 80 miles or so away from Jerusalem, away from where the temple was. And yet this is where we see the Spirit take Jesus to go and to teach. Now, as we said at the beginning of this series, Luke doesn't always write in chronological order. And so because of that and because of some stuff that we see in the other Gospels, in particular the Gospel of John, it's hard to know if, if what Luke tells us here is chronologically lined up or not. But, but, but either way, what we see is that at the start of Jesus' ministry, he is out preaching, he's out teaching, and he's starting to become well-known for that. Which is why it says there at the end of verse 15, he was being glorified by all. And so let's, let's keep going here. Look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as was his custom, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant. He sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." And so, as Jesus is out on this preaching tour of Galilee, he has finally uh, rolled back into his hometown of Nazareth. And what we see here in verse 16 is that he went to the synagogue on on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. And so, we see there that Jesus was a regular church attender. Some of you might want to think about that. Uh, Just kidding. Um, But this was his custom, he went to church regularly. And while there, uh, what a a typical synagogue service would have looked like is there would have been certain prayers that they would have recited together. Uh, Most likely, they would have recited the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6. And then there would be these scripture readings, usually one from the Torah, uh, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, and then one from the prophets. And after the scriptures were read, then someone would uh, then uh, sit down and give a teaching or they would begin to share from the passage. And so since Jesus was, uh, had been out teaching and preaching in Galilee and was gaining some notoriety, it would make sense for him to be the one to stand up and to read a passage and then to teach from it. And so it says he, he stands up and the, the scroll or the book that was handed to him was the prophet Isaiah. And once he gets it, he goes to a very specific passage, which uh, is Isaiah 61 with a little bit of Isaiah 58 thrown in. And it says he reads it, he rolls it back up. He gives it to the scroll guy, or the attendant, and it says he sits down. And everyone's eyes begin to fix on him, and he just simply looks at them and says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, we don't know, but that is either the shortest sermon of all time, or the other possibility is that Luke is only giving us the opening line of it. Uh, which could be the case because it says here that he began to say to them. And so uh, whether it was a very short sermon or a, a, a the first line of a longer one, um, either way, because of the passage that Jesus read and because of what he claims about it, this is one of the most profound sermons of all time. Now to fully appreciate that, I think we need to dive a little bit into the passage and I think we also need to paint the scene of what this would have really looked like for Jesus in his hometown. You see, the passage that Jesus picks here is not just some ordinary passage. No, this is a very uh, important and profound passage in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a passage that promises God's future salvation of Israel, it's a passage that talks about God's Messiah the one that God would send to, to rescue and to save Israel, and it describes what the Messiah will be all about. And the first thing that we see about the Messiah is that he will be empowered by and he will be anointed by the Holy Spirit, as it says there in verse 18. And the reason that we know that this is talking about the Messiah or the Christ, which those words are interchangeable, the reason we know that is because the, the title Christ Or the title Messiah, it is derived from the verb to anoint. And so because that's the verb that's used here, we know that this is a messianic passage, that it's referring to the Messiah. And what we see here in Jesus claiming to uh, fulfill this prophecy, he is absolutely claiming that he is the Messiah. He is saying, I am the anointed one. I am the king of Israel. And so what will be the mission of this anointed one? What will he do? What kind of kingdom will he bring? Well, it says there that he will proclaim good news to the poor. Now the word poor in the Hebrew language and culture, it it certainly had tied to it and included the materially poor. But it was also used more broadly and it would include those who were on the outside, those who were on the margins of society. And so because of that understanding, the poor here would include marginalized groups like women and children and the sick and, and you know, people like tax collectors and, and foreigners and all of that. Again, it obviously includes the materially poor because they too are on the margins of society. And really, I think what this is getting at is it's saying that the Messiah will proclaim good news to those who are spiritually poor. So those who are aware of their need for God and who are looking to God for help. And on that point, I really like what one commentator said about this. He, He wrote this. The poor who are the recipients of this good news are not only the economically impoverished, but all of those who are marginal or excluded from human fellowship, the outcast. They are the losers in the competitive race for scarce resources, economic security, honor and power their only recourse is to look to god for help Now, when you take some time to read through the gospels what you see and what is absolutely clear is that this is the type of person that jesus both went after and who were receptive to his ministry and his message you see again if you look at the gospels jesus consistently went to and engaged those who were either physically poor or who were socially poor and the reason that I think he did that, it was because, again, he understood that these were the type of people who understood their spiritual poverty. They were the ones who were, need, uh, were aware of their need for God. And so whether it was someone like a poor widow whose uh, only son died and who was physically poor, or whether it was a guy like Zacchaeus who was not physically poor, who was actually materially wealthy, but who was socially poor because of his career. He was a hated man among his fellow Israelites. And so these are the type of people that Jesus engaged, those who were spiritually poor, and to them he proclaimed good news to them. And so again, we see here that part of the Messiah's role is to proclaim good news to the poor, but not only that, he will also proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. He will set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now just like with the poor here in this passage, I think the primary application or outworking of these three is spiritual, not just physical. Although certainly physical is included as we'll see later on in chapter 4. I mean, in other words, does Jesus heal the phys- those who are physically blind? Yes, we see that in his ministry. Does he uh, free those who are oppressed by uh, demonic oppression? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. However, though, when you look at this list, does he free those who are in prison? Well, when we dig into his life, we see no indication that Jesus physically released somebody from prison, and, and, which is probably why John the Baptist got as tripped up as he did later on in life when he was stuck rotting in prison and he was not being freed. And, and he gets to the point where he actually sends his disciples to go ask Jesus, like, are you the Messiah? Because I was, I was studying Isaiah and it says you'll set the prisoners free and here I am still in prison. And Jesus says, "We'll go tell John that, that the blind receive, the good. The, the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, he sent him kind of a hidden message of, yes, I am the Messiah, and I'm sorry, but no, you're not getting out of prison. And so I think because of that, again, the, the primary application of these works, of these words, is spiritual, but I think at times included the physical as well. Now, the last part of the passage that Jesus quotes says that the Messiah will proclaim the year Of the Lord's favor. Now, that that phrase there, the year of the Lord's favor, it was tied to the Old Testament idea of the year of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee was something that Israel was to do every 50 years, and what they would do is is all debts, all financial debts, would be canceled. Anyone who was a a slave would be set free. And so, again, just like with the other ones we've looked at, I think this too uh, we see working itself out in a spiritual way in Jesus' life. You see, those who receive Jesus, they have their sins. They have their debts canceled and forgiven. Those who receive Jesus are, are set free from slavery to sin. And so with all of that said, uh, all of these wonderful acts of grace, giving sight to the blind, freeing those who are oppressed, proclaiming good news to the poor, Jesus, and, and saying all of that, he is claiming here to be the fulfillment of those, uh, of those things and the one who will bring them about. And so that's a little bit about the passage, but I want you to just try to crawl into this story. I mean, think about this. Everything we know about Nazareth uh, tells us that it was a a very small town. Jesus had grown up there his entire life. The people at the synagogue that day most likely would have known him. They would have watched him grow up. They would have seen him play with their kids. They probably would have uh, seen him working with his father Joseph in his workshop, building stuff. And yet here he is, he's a, he's in a grown man, he's been out teaching, he's, again he's been out gaining some notoriety in the community, and yet he finally returns home, and he goes to church and he stands up in church one Sunday, the, the very church that he grew up in, and he picks a passage which describes the mission and calling of Israel's future Messiah, he reads it, he looks at them and says essentially, yep guys, that's me, I'm that guy. I mean that's crazy, right? Right? I mean, we just read it so fast, and we're like, oh, that's interesting, but like, that is crazy. Jesus, before all of, again, his neighbors and people that he grew up with, he has just claimed to be the Messiah, and so this is his sermon. Let's move to the second movement in our outline, though, in our story, and that is, what's the crowd's response to the sermon? We'll look at verse 22. It says, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth and they said is not this joseph's son now look again this is absolutely astonishing given what i just said about what jesus was claiming here it is astonishing that the crowd responds positively to him it says there that they spoke well of him they marveled at and, and were in awe of his gracious words now in in asking here isn't this joseph's son you may you may think that that's them being cautious or that's them being negative but And that's certainly how some interpret it, but I'm not so sure that it is. In fact, one commentator argues very strongly that that's that's not the case. That again, this is still a positive reaction from them. He he said this, When someone is identified as the son of his father in the Old Testament, it is never intended to diminish the individual's status. Instead, this question should be taken as an exclamation that happily points out that he is a local boy. Implicit with the recognition is the expectation that they will reap special favors from him. In other words, what this commentator is arguing is that when the crowds ask or when they say, isn't this Joseph's son, they're not being negative, they're not being cautious, but instead they're saying something like, man, can you believe it? Can you believe the Messiah is from Nazareth? He's one of us. I mean, gosh, it's, it's Joseph's son. We, we know him. I bet that, that we'll be able to get some perks and some privileges out of this. And, and I, I just wonder how all of this is going to benefit us. And so, again, what we see here in, in, in the crowd's response to Jesus' sermon is that they respond pretty positively to, to it. And so let's go to the third movement in our story, and that is this. What is Jesus' response to the crowd's response? Well, look at verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came, and o- came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. So Jesus' response to their response is to rebuke and to warn them. Now, I don't know about you, but that's really confusing, right? Like, why would Jesus respond to them in this way, when so far they have positively responded to him? Well, one reason why I think that Jesus may have responded in this way is because he could sense and he could perceive their expectations of what they thought the Messiah would look like and how it would benefit them. And so he is warning them up front that he will not be a slave to their expectations, In other words, Jesus isn't out to please the crowds and to live up to their expectations, but rather Jesus gave his whole life to please his father and to do what only his father called him to do. You see, there's a sense in which Jesus must have knew that they were wanting him to perform some sort of miracle, which is why, in other words, they wanted him to show off or to, to prove himself. Which is why he quotes this proverb of, surely you'll say to me, physician, heal yourself and, and do the things uh, here that you did in Capernaum. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm not going to show off for you. I'm not going to prove myself. In fact, not only am I not going to do that, but I'm also going to remind you guys that prophets aren't accepted in their hometowns. It's almost like he's saying, look, I'm under no illusion that your support and your affirmation of me is going to last. He's like, I, I've read the Old Testament. I know what happens to prophets. Initially, things are good, and then people start to hate you and reject you, and eventually they kill you. And so, no, I, I don't need your affirmation. I don't need your approval. And not only that, though, but he takes it even kind of a step farther and he reminds them of two stories from the Old Testament involving two different prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And in both examples, the prophets bless and benefit people who are not Israelites. He, he tells these two stories of the prophets who were uh, prophets in, in some of the worst days of Israel's history. When Israel was the farthest away from following Yahweh, uh, this is when these prophets were serving. And Jesus takes two stories from them. And I think in doing so, he's warning them that God doesn't always do what we expect him to do, particularly when, when he is rejected. And, and I, with that, I think Jesus is agreeing with John the Baptist, who, as we saw in chapter 3, he warned the crowds to not rest in their family lineage if you remember, we looked at it a few weeks ago, John the Baptist said to them, he said, don't say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our, as our father. For God is able to from these stones raise up children for Abraham. And so don't rest on the fact that you are an Israelite. And I think Jesus here is also uh, agreeing with that. And he's warning them that, that he is going to the spiritually poor. To those who understand their need for God and who come to God in humility. And he says, I'm going to that type of person whether they are a Gentile or not. In fact, that was the plan all along. When you dig into the book of Isaiah, you see that Israel all along was to be a light to the nations. They were to be a light to the Gentiles, but they consistently didn't do that. They failed that in that. And so again, Jesus here, I think, is, is, is rebuking the crowd and he's warning them that his kingdom... And that his reign as Messiah, that it's, not, it's going to look differently than what they think it will. And so that's how he responds to their response. But let's look at this last movement here, and that is, how do they respond to Jesus' response? Well, look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with rage. And they rose up and they drove him out of town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down from the cliff. But passing through their mist, he went away. I mean, this is crazy. The crowd literally goes from being amazed at Jesus to enraged at Jesus and they make that shift in a matter of a few minutes. I mean, it's not like that they were just like slightly bothered or slightly annoyed by his teaching. No, they were actually enraged to the point that they were trying to kill him. And again, this is crazy. These are people who knew Jesus, who saw him grow up, and now here they are trying to kill him. They're trying to throw him off a cliff. And and actually, we have a picture of what uh, cliff they think that perhaps they were trying to throw him off. Um, Tom Short, who taught at our Good Friday service, took uh, had this picture taken when they were there uh, just a few months ago. If you look closely, uh, you see that. Really white head in the middle there. That's Pastor Bob Voltman. Uh, <laughs> Pastor Mike Failure, I think, is next to him. But uh, but yeah, as you can tell from the picture, if you were thrown down from there, you would not survive that. And so again, they the way that they respond is they actually try to kill Jesus Christ. Now I don't we don't know exactly why they respond this way or what specifically they are reacting to. It, it appears most likely they're 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 reacting to jesus in such a violent way because they are so offended and bothered that he would uh that he would suggest that his grace and that his salvation would be extended to all including the gentiles which to them that would have been unthinkable but i don't know it feels like there's got to be more going on here I'm, i'm not sure but but either way what we see is that this is how they respond the the people of nazareth totally and utterly reject jesus as their messiah and one of the things that's so sobering about that is that when you read the rest of the Gospels, there's no indication that Jesus ever went back to Nazareth. And I just think that's really scary, you know. It's like, I, I think a lot of us think that we can uh, put Jesus off or we can, you know, I'll get right with the Lord later on or, you know, I want let to, me, let me live my life the way that I do now and I'll, I'll, I'll receive him later on. Well, you better be careful because Nazareth re- rejected Jesus and he never went back their way again. And so, you know, as we kind of step back from the story, there's so much here. There's so much that we could kind of hone in on and focus on. But but as I thought about this story, the thing that for me that was particularly meaningful, the thing for me that was uh, really inspiring in the life of Jesus is that what we see here is that Jesus was totally free from the fear of rejection. Jesus for himself was totally free from the fear of man. He was not a people pleaser. Jesus didn't allow himself to be controlled by other people's opinions of him. He wasn't into image management of his social media accounts. And when you think of that, I I think the thing that's particularly amazing about that, and that's amazing about this story, is that he was able to be that way in front of his hometown. I mean, if ever there was a temptation to be afraid of what others thought about you, Or if ever there was a temptation to desire uh, others' affirmation, it's with those you're most familiar with. I mean, why do you think every high school reunion goes the way that it does? Right? Have you ever been to one of these things? I mean, everybody is so fake. Everybody is pretending that they're doing way better than they actually are, you know? It's like, yeah, I I was on my yacht last week down in the Caribbean, and, you know, the fishing was just wonderful. I mean, have, have you ever been down there? It's like... The real story is like they were on their friend's pontoon at Buckeye Lake, you know. But they're like, yeah, it's just amazing. And yet we all do this. There's there's such a strong temptation to impress and to, to get the affirmation from those who know you the best. I mean, if you think people are fake on Instagram, again, just go to your high school reunion. It's ridiculous. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't, you know, the equivalent of his high school reunion going back to the synagogue, he doesn't act that way. He actually, it seems, goes out of his way to get them to reject him. I mean, I was thinking about it. You know, he, he gives that first part of the sermon. He says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. It says they, are, or they marvel at his gracious words. And so he could have just stopped there and just received that. He could have just let them. He could have, he could have just, like, taken that affirmation and, and kept it. But he doesn't do that. It's like, again, he goes out of his way to provoke them. And I think the reason he does that is because he wants to reveal what's really in their hearts. I mean, let's be honest. How spiritually receptive and how spiritually mature was this synagogue uh, in that they, the way that they respond is they try to kill a person. And so I think Jesus is provoking. He's revealing what was really in their hearts. And again, I, I don't know about you, but the thing that struck me from that and from this story is just how free Jesus is. He's so free from the opinions of others. He's not a slave to other people's expectations of him and of of what the Messiah should look like. In fact, we're going to see this illustrated again next week because uh, after his rejection at Nazareth, Jesus goes to another city, to Capernaum. And he just has this insane day. It's, it's amazing. He uh, delivers a guy from demons. He then heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then he, uh, basically the whole town then comes to him for healing. And it says, it's one of those just amazing passages where it's like, and he healed them all. You know, just like a summary that you just, you can't wrap your mind around. And then the next day he uh, wakes up. He goes and spends some time in prayer with his father. The, the crowds come and find him and they beg him to stay. And he's like, no, no, I can't do that. After spending time with my father, I realized that I have to go to other towns to preach the kingdom of God as well. Because this is why I came. This is why the father sent me. And so, no, I I didn't come to meet your expectations. I didn't come to be controlled by your agenda. No, I came to follow my father. I came to do my father's will, not your will. Again, as I, I thought about this, I was just reminded of how hard this is for many of us. Probably all of us struggle at some level with the fear of man. Many of us, whether we realize it or not, we are so desperate for others' approval. And not only are we so desperate for their approval, but we deeply fear being rejected by them. And because of those two things, they completely control our life. It's why I said earlier, all of us are uh, in this moment right now trying to portray and to protect certain images about ourselves. And the thing that's interesting to me about this topic uh, personally is that I, I didn't really think I struggled with this that much. Like I, I, I thought by and large, uh, you know, I've been following the Lord for about 15 years. I thought by and large I was pretty free from this. But, but the Lord has been showing me over the last few months and over the last year that this is a major sin area in my life. Like, like things that I was writing off as personality the Lord has shown me are actually defense mechanisms to protect myself from others. It's like, oh, just you know, I'm, I'm not gifted in that, or you know, it's you know, I'm pretty introverted and all that. But and, and you know, again, those things factor in. But I think the reality is, I'm just, I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid of, uh, I desire people's affirmation, and I'm afraid I can't meet it, and so I withdraw or whatever. And so. I don't know about you or, or how much you've thought about this. Maybe this is kind of really the first time you've thought about it, but, but I'm pretty sure this is something that all of us, again, at some level, we struggle with. And this week I was looking at a book that I have uh, that really talks about this by a guy named Edward Welsh called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And in one section of the book, he's, he's really trying to diagnose this and trying to help you under, uh, to see if this is a problem in your life. And so he just kind of rolls off a series of questions to, to reflect upon to see if this is an issue. And, and they were super convicting, and so um, I thought I would share them with you so you can feel convicted along with me, right? But here's some of the questions he asked along with some comments. He says, have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Peer pressure is simply a euphemism for the fear of man. If you experienced it when you were younger, believe me, it's still there. It may be submerged and revealed in more adult ways, or it may be camouflaged by your impressive resume, but it's still there. What about this? Are you overcommitted? Do you find it hard to say no to others, even when wisdom indicates that you should? If that's you, you are a people pleaser, which he says is another euphemism for the fear of man. What about this question? Do you need something from your spouse? Do you need your spouse to listen to you? Do you need your spouse to respect you? Think carefully here. Certainly God is uh, pleased where there is good communication and mutual honor between spouses. But for many people, the desire for these things has roots in something that is far from God's design for his image bearers. Unless you understand the biblical parameters of marital commitment, your spouse will become the one that you fear. And therefore, your spouse will control you. Your spouse will quietly take the place of God in your life. What about another one? He says, do you ever feel as if you might be exposed as an imposter? The sense of being exposed is an expression of the fear of man. It means that the opinions of other people, especially their possible opinion that you are a failure, it's able to control you. What about this one? Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what other people might think? Are you afraid of making mistakes that will make you look bad in other people's eyes? In other words, he's saying, are you a perfectionist? Are you you know you you have a discussion or you make a decision and you go home and you just you replay that over and over in your mind and you oh I should have done this or oh you know that one guy had a weird look on his face during the meeting I bet I bet that guy doesn't like me you start making up conver you know you start making up conversations in your head and you start making all kinds of assumptions What about this do you feel empty or meaningless Do you experience love hunger here again, if you need others to fill you, you are controlled by them. Just like a car needs, ga- needs to be filled with gas, therefore a car is controlled by gas, right? A car will only go if it has fuel in it, and if you're being controlled by others, if you are needing them to fill your love hunger, then you are controlled by them. What about this? Do you get easily embarrassed? If so, people, people's perceived opinions of you define you. Do you ever lie, especially those little white lies, you know? You know, or maybe it's a cover-up where it's not technically a lie with your mouth, but it's still essentially deception. It's a lie. Are you jealous of other people? If so, you are controlled by them and their possessions. Do you avoid people? This one was good for me. Do you avoid people? If so, though you might say you don't need people, you are still controlled by them. And then he says, isn't a hermit dominated by the fear of man? Ooh, yeah, I think they are. Why are they hiding out in their home? Because they don't want to, for whatever reason, they just can't handle people's opinions of them. How you guys doing? <laughs> Woo! These are brutal, right? So he, he goes on, he lists a few more, and I, I don't have time to go through them. But, but then, he goes, then he goes here, he says, does it include you yet? Could you raise your hand on any of these yet? He says, if not, I got one word for you, evangelism, and he's like, gotcha, right? I mean, how many of you, when Mike was talking about Discover Life, like just started to sink in your chair, like, I don't want to do that. What do you mean invite my neighbor to this thing? They'll, they'll think I'm crazy. Uh, Welsh says here, he says, have you ever been too timid to share your faith in Christ because others might think you are an irrational fool? He says, the fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. And I think I really agree with Welsh's point here. I think he's right on. This is a struggle for all of us. Even the most seemingly confident and self-assured ones of us, I think, still struggle. And oftentimes I think that confidence is a cover-up for how insecure you actually are. Again, this is something that I think is absolutely true of most non-Christians, which is why the world looks the way that it does. But unfortunately, I think it's also true of many Christians as well. Again, to Welsh's point, the reason that many of us struggle to share our faith consistently isn't because we don't think that we should, right? We know that we should. I mean, the latest latest research in Barna says people are beginning to think they shouldn't, but you should. The Bible tells you to, to, you know go into all the nations and preach the gospel, so you should share your faith. But the reason we don't do it isn't because we don't think we should. The reason we don't do it isn't also because we don't believe that it's true and that there are actual consequences to people not receiving Jesus. We believe that. But rather, the reason we don't share our faith consistently is because ultimately, we fear rejection more than we fear someone going to hell, even when that includes people that we love. Like the fact that, that I'm more afraid of, some, of, uh, of being rejected by some of my family members more than I'm afraid of them going to hell is terrifying to me. And yet, unfortunately, if I'm being honest, that's often the case. And so if this is true, if this is something that all of us can relate to, something that all of us struggle with, how do we begin to overcome this? How can we begin to walk in the freedom that Jesus himself walked in? Well, I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to admit to ourselves that this is a struggle. I think we have to acknowledge and be honest that this is a sin area in our life. And not only do we have to acknowledge that, but I think we have to repent of it. Remember what I said a few weeks ago when we talked about John the Baptist? Repentance is more than saying, I'm sorry. It's more than acknowledging it. Repentance is a change of direction. And so if we want to overcome this, we need to start... By repenting. But but not only that, though, I think the next thing that we need to do is we need to ask God to empower us with his Holy Spirit. You see, remember what Luke told us at the beginning of this chapter. Both before Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and also before he went out teaching, it says there that he was led by the Spirit and he returned in the power of the Spirit. You see, listen, Jesus didn't resist the temptation to fear man and to seek others' approval because Uh, It was easy for him. It wasn't like he leaned into his deity like, I don't need you to like me. I'm God. Who are you? No, I think that this was an actual temptation for him. But just like all the other temptations that we saw uh, last time in the wilderness, Jesus was able to overcome them because he was walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you and I want to overcome this in our lives, then we will have to do the same. Remember what I said earlier, Jesus is all about preaching good news to the poor. And when you and I recognize our need of and our dependency on the Holy Spirit, when we cry out to the Father for help, in that moment we are proving and we are telling God the Father that we are poor in spirit. And in doing that, I believe we are positioning ourselves in order to receive grace and power from God. Again, as Chris said years ago in a message, I just... He, I don't know, it was probably like two years ago, he was teaching on faith and trying to define what that looks like. And he said, faith is, it looks like dependency on God. Faith doesn't look like you being strong and confident in yourself. Faith looks like you being weak. It looks like you being dependent and looking to God for help. The, the last thing that I want to point out, though, that I think so crucial to this whole conversation is this that in order for you and I to overcome the fear of man I think we have to do at least two more things and I think they they hold together in attention I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to be confident of our identity in Christ I mean the Bible says over a hundred times it uses that phrase in Christ we have to be confident in our identity as the children of God And I think we also have to, the other thing I think we have to hold in tension, though, is we have to fear God more than we fear man. And I think both of these uh, things are, are, are you see, exhibited in the life of Jesus. You see, I think Jesus was able to face the rejection of his hometown, the rejection of those closest to him, because he was so confident in his identity as the beloved son. Again, this story takes place, like, right after his baptism. And remember what happened at his baptism. The Father spoke from heaven in front of all and verbally spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, with him I am well pleased. And so, because Jesus had the Father's affirmation and acceptance, he didn't need man's. And if you and I are ever going to be free from others, we will have to rest in and we will have to believe that we too, because of Jesus, because of everything we talked about last weekend, because of Easter, because of that, we too have the Father's affirmation and acceptance. That what the, what the Father spoke over Jesus at his baptism, he has spoken over you and I as well. We are the beloved sons and daughters of God, and he is well-pleased with us. But not only that, though, I think that, that that is absolutely critical, but I think we also have to have along with it, we have to fear and revere the Father more than we do others. And as part of that, I think what it looks like to fear God, what it looks like to be in awe of Him, it looks like us trusting Him with every aspect of our lives. You see, one verse that's so pivotal in this whole conversation is Proverbs twenty nine thirty five, which says, The fear of man is a snare, or in other words, it's a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Again, we see that Jesus maintained this attitude throughout his life, and that's why he could look at others and he could say things to them like, I only do what I see the Father doing. Or another place in John, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, Jesus, in his life, he feared the Lord. He trusted in his Father more than he trusted in other people. In Jesus' eyes and heart, God the Father was big and people were small. And that, my friends, that is the correct view of reality. So to close here, let me just share one last quote from Ed Welsh in his book, When, When People Are Big and God Is Small. He says this, All experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. Since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. Therefore, the first task in escaping the sneer of the fear of of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious, not other people. That's what we have to do. We have to have such a high view, such a big view of the the grandeur and the, the glory of God that that other people's opinions just begin to fade in our minds. But to do that, I think we need help. We need help from the Lord, and so let's pray. Father, Lord, I just pray for myself, and I pray for my friends here. Lord, would you empower us by the Holy Spirit to walk in the freedom that you have for us? Thank you that your word says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, including the freedom from the fear of man. God, I pray that you would raise us up to be a church that is unashamed of of you, Lord. That would you just ignite uh, just flames of evangelism in our heart, Lord, that we can just live our lives free from others' expectations and free from others' opinions of us. Lord, help us to be fools for Christ. Help us not to worry about what others think or how they perceive us or or whatever, Lord, as things have shifted and changed in our culture and as as Christians have uh, taken the moral low ground through our beliefs about sin, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be bold. You would help us to be free from the fear of man. I ask you to do this in your son's name. Amen.